Welcome to How to Sell Drugs, a podcast about drug policy, culture, and business. We're interested in how drugs are sold, and more importantly, how drugs should be sold. With us today is Todd White, the founder of Dry Farms Wines. Thanks so much for joining us. Hey, super happy to be here and talk about drugs. <laughs> well, I mean, as uh, I've heard you say before, uh, alcohol is a drug, and uh it's something that is obviously central to your business, and uh, maybe you can uh, provide some brief background on, on how you came to start Dry Farms Wines. Sure. So Dry Farm Wines was a result of my needing to sort of scratch my own itch. And so I have been a lifelong wine drinker and a lifelong um, drinker in general. I don't drink anything but wine anymore, but I used to drink quite a bit of spirits. Lifelong, so starting at nine. birth? Nine. Nine. <laughs> so I've been drinking wine since I was about nine years old. Okay. And um, and just had a, you know, at times a kind of roller coaster ride with alcohol. And now I drink a very specific type of alcohol uh, and lower alcohol products just because of the dangerous and destructive nature of alcohol. I mean, alcohol is not my drug of choice. I mean, it's... Uh, just happens to be culturally my drug of choice, and I happen to love wine. I don't love alcohol, though. What is your drug of choice? Mushrooms are my drug of choice. Okay. But uh, <laughs> they're just not quite as culturally acceptable. <laughs> that can cause uh, legal issues. However, um, they are a lot of fun. <laughs> a lot more fun than alcohol. Well, maybe that'll be the next company. So, uh, yeah, I hope we can get that straightened out re from a regulatory point of view, but... Uh, Sure. Unfortunately, they remain a Schedule One narcotic. Yeah. Uh, so, but anyhow, so on the so I wanted to I, I became ketogenic about five years ago. I've been just on a a health fanatic and on a path of healthier living for a long time, anti aging and kind of thinking about my wellness in a very serious way. And alcohol and particularly wines were just not um, just not serving me, and so. I thought it was just the higher alcohol because alcohol has gotten very high in wines over the last 30 years. So in my pursuit of trying to find lower alcohol wines, I stumbled upon the natural wine revolution, which really began in central France maybe a decade ago. It's become very chic and kind of hipster of recently to drink natural <laughs> wines. But when we discovered natural wines, it was before it had become sort of the popular pursuit that it is today but so before it was cool so you're you're essentially a hipster yourself i'm a hipster and didn't even know it <laughs> a poet and didn't know it <clears throat> so anyway so that so that you know so in that pursuit we found these all natural products that are additive three there's 76 additives approved by the fda for the use in winemaking most people don't know about these additives because the wine industry has kept them secret how they've been able to do that is by spending tens of millions of dollars in lobby money with their friends in Washington to keep contents labeling off a wine bottle. So wine is the only major food product without a contents label because typically wines are filled with a lot of toxins and poisons in addition to very high alcohol. So what we created was a business around lower alcohol and additive-free and pure organic products, which actually make you feel better and have a much better relationship with alcohol. That's so wonderful. So, so, uh, what 
things uh, specifically do you test for? Um, obviously, you said there's... Yeah, we do independent lab testing on every wine. Uh-huh. Uh, among the things we test for are pesticides. We test for molds. We put test for alcohol. Alcohol mm-hmm. is stated on a wine bottle. It's also not required to be accurate by law. Mm-hmm. And so it's typically rounded down in America. Mm-hmm. I don't sell any domestic wines or no wines made in the United States that meet our criteria. Sure. And so we work with hundreds of small farms across Europe, mm-hmm. uh, small family farms. But um, we also test for sugar. So because we're ketogenic, we don't eat sugar. So sure. we live a pretty sugar-free li- lifestyle. So we test for a whole bunch of contaminants in right. wine. And, and, uh, and so I, I heard you speaking on uh, Dave Asprey's podcast, uh, and you mentioned a specific toxin. It was... Um, uh, Valkyrin. Was it Valkyrin, or maybe it was a mycotoxin? Well, mycotoxins are molds in wine. Right. So it's mold testing is required in Europe. So the EU requires a battery of tests uh, on every wine, as does the United States on wines as well. But one of the things the European wines require is testing for ocrotoxin A, which is a mycotoxin known as a mold. Mm-hmm. And so in the United States... Um, further collusion between the government and the wine industry, there's no required testing, and wines are not tested for molds in the United States. It's the only time a domestic wine gets tested for mold is if it's exported to Europe where it's required to be tested. The test is somewhat expensive, and so U.S. wine manufacturers are not required to test for mold. So mycotoxins are one of the things that we test for. Got it. And and I, I remember hearing you say um, when you were speaking um, – that there are also some Asian countries that test for some of these mycotoxins. Is that right? Um, no, I don't. Maybe maybe we were talking Asian something else. I don't know. Oh, okay. No, but okay. Uh, but European definitely definitely required to to test for Got it. for mycotoxins. And so one of the things that's interesting is it seems like you know uh, among the things that you guys test for, you want essentially a low sugar, low alcohol wine, which. Seems like a very sweet spot in the fermentation process, from what I understand, because if you ferment something for too short a period of time, the sugar has not been digested by the yeast, but if you wait too long, there's too much alcohol. So how do you find that sweet spot? Well, here's how you make wine and how you get to that so-called sweet spot. So you begin with grape juice, obviously, which is teeming with sugar. But here's the here's the... Here's the caveat to that. Depending upon how much sugar is in the fruit at the time of picking mm-hmm. will determine will ultimately determine the 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 outcome of alcohol. Mm-hmm. So in a full in, in a full fermentation. What I mean by full fermentation is that how wine is made is fruit juice, which is teeming with sugar, is inoculated with yeast, or the yeast is allowed to activate in the juice. Mm-hmm. The yeast eats the sugar. If it's fully fermented, what will happen is that the yeast eats all the available sugar, and then the yeast will die from a lack of food source. Mm-hmm. That's a fully fermented, sugar-free wine. Now, <clears throat> how the alcohol level gets very high in a fully fermented product is if the fruit was too ripe at the time of picking, mm. which is a, which is a winemaking style. Mm-hmm. So, like in the United States, typically um, we pick fruit at very high sugar. Mm-hmm. which is measured in something called BRICS, B-R-I-X. You can measure it in the field mm-hmm. with a small instrument mm-hmm. that measures the amount of sugar at the time of picking. Mm-hmm. Higher the sugar is, riper the fruit is, mm-hmm. 
then the higher the alcohol will be if the product is fully fermented. But mm-hmm. what's happening with commercial wines is that the winemaker is introducing sulfur dioxide to the wine to kill the yeast prior to completing fermentation, leaving residual sugars behind. Mm-hmm. And so that's a winemaking style. Mm-hmm. Americans love sugar. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's a global problem. The sugar addiction, yeah. the sugar, the drug that is sugar, the neurotoxin of sugar, mm-hmm. um, which is a global addiction problem, should, mm-hmm. be, should be a category one drug. Mm-hmm. Right, so the sugar problem is is a global epidemic, but it's particularly acute in the United States, right? And so, also when you get these wines that you know people describe as having these long caramelly finishes, mm-hmm. that's sugar and sugar byproducts like glycerol mm-hmm. that cause that. When you drink a natural wine, a sugar free wine, they don't have those finishes like that. Got it. Are there any particular grapes that uh, are more likely to be Higher in sugar because I some of the wines that I've had from uh, that are approved by you guys it seems like it runs the full gamut of uh, different grapes that I would expect. I think you guys serve a Cab Franc. You guys had a was it a the Spanish one that I had the other day? Tinto. Yeah. Yeah. From so, Portugal. Yeah. So are, are there any grapes that are that typically fail more consistently than others or it's no it's really a winemaking style sure. so any grape can be made in this style mm-hmm. it's just it's it's it's, it's a winemaking style got it and so it's you know these unfortunately the 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 most prestigious and the best known wine critic of the last 100 years favored a very sweet very Full, rich, high alcohol wine. His mm-hmm. name's Robert Parker. Right, he's right. the one who invented the one hundred point scale. And people say that the whole global wine market is shifting towards this individual person's palate, which I find fascinating. Right. And and uh, he weighs about three hundred pounds, and he's on <laughs> two canes, and he's a type two diabetic. Oh wow! Right. So this this winemaking style, but when you get his rating, then then winemakers or vintners will pursue this winemaking style to get his rating. Sure. So wines are sold either through branding mm-hmm. or through ratings. Right. I mean, you you walk into a wine store or to a grocery shop or whatever, there are hundreds and hundreds or perhaps thousands of choices, mm-hmm. right? And you have no idea what to buy. Well, one, right? but I also, I think, learned from you that uh, there are basically three large wine companies that own, what is it? Well, some large percentage in, of yeah, the entire so what's market. What's happened, it was just another massive consolidation last week. So where the number two wine company sold a big portfolio of wines to the number one wine company. So what's happened in the the wine supply is exactly the same thing that's happened in our food supply. There's been massive corporate consolidation driven by money and greed. So 52% of all the wines manufactured in the United States are made by just three giant companies. They're manufactured in these huge factories in Central California. Sure. Now, you don't know that because they hide behind thousands of brands and labels mm-hmm. to have you believe that you're drinking from a farmhouse or a chateau. So conceivably, are you maybe even with two different brands of wine, two different bottles with two different labels, potentially even be the be same wine? Be the same wine. Yeah? Right. That's insane. Right. And <clears throat> tons of industrial farming. Glyphosate or Roundup is the product name. It's the number one used herbicide in U.S. vineyards. Mm-hmm. Glyphosate has been consistently found test positive for trace amounts of glyphosate in U.S. wines mm-hmm. in two different studies over the last two years. Sure. And so this 
you know, this industrial farming practices, these industrial manufacturing practices, when you see these factories in the Central Valley of California, they are, they're like tank farms. As far as you can see, they're like these massive wine tanks, sure. right? And tremendous amount of volume. I mean, it's a, it's a uh, you know, it's a $70 billion marketplace. Mm-hmm. 70% of all the wines made in the United States are made by the top 30 companies. Right, so we're talking about this massive consolidation that's happened over the last twenty years. Is there something inherently um, problematic about large-scale manufacturing of wine that well, would lead them to? Well, of course there is, because you have to use these. In order to make wine in any appreciable quantity, uh-huh. you have to use these additives and chemicals, including one that's so toxic that it can only be applied by a specialty contractor who comes in in hazmat suits, and uh-huh. the whole winery has to be empty. It's used to treat the most common bacterial defect in wine called Brettanomyces, uh-huh. and this chemical is so toxic that if you drank the wine within 24 hours of treatment, it would kill you, wow. right? And then, but even then, the government allows up to 200 parts per million of this trace chemical to be left behind in wines when it's used. Got it. And so, to make sure I understand, it seems like the inherent limitation of large-scale manufacturing of wine... Uh, the the reason why it's hard to produce according to the strict criteria that you guys test for is because when you're making things in batches that are that large and you have this many workers and you have people coming in and out, it's impossible to maintain a sterile environment so the wine could spoil unless you use these additives. Well, yeah, the primary problem with making wine is that its bacterial environment is very unstable. Because it so, has so much sugar. There's so many like, bacteria that are swimming around in the fermentation process that maintaining maintaining a sterile environment so that a fault, a bacterial fault, doesn't take place in the wine, mm-hmm. which can then spoil the entire vintage or right. or have to then take... So in order to make wine in any appreciable quantities in this high-risk environment, then a couple of things have to happen. First of all, they must use, like natural wines, the kind of wines that we sell and drink, natural Mm -hmm. wines are fermented with wild native yeast Mm -hmm. that are indigenous to the vineyards. So every Mm -hmm. wine grape in the world has yeast on the skin of it. It's collected through the air while it's in the vineyard. Sure, It's a wild native yeast. But in commercial wines, they don't use that wild native yeast. In natural winemaking, that is the only thing that's in that's in the wine is this wild native yeast that's on the skin. Mm -hmm. First thing a commercial wine maker does is, again, use sulfur dioxide to kill the native wild yeast, and then they inoculate it with a genetically modified lab-cultured commercial yeast. Mm -hmm. And three reasons why they do that. Again, to make wine in any appreciable quantity, you can't use these wild native yeasts because they're too unstable, Mm -hmm. and they require a lot of coddling. Because they could die, and then they just die, and then you have a broken fermentation, and that's a whole other issue Mm -hmm. in the winemaking process. So you can't make wine in large quantities using native yeast. The second reason is that native yeast will not withstand a high alcohol environment. These lab culture genetically modified yeast will withstand an alcohol environment, generally up to twenty percent alcohol. Mm -hmm. So that's another risk for the winemaker. And the third reason is that these modified commercial lab grown yeast 
can be modified to have certain flavor profiles. So let's just say that you grow some shitty grapes in Central California, but you want it to taste like an Italian wine. Mm-hmm. They have a yeast for that, mm-hmm. right? And so, so that's you know this is this is so you can put this Italian package together. It feels like Italian wine, although it's grown in Central California. Mm-hmm. It tastes like Italian wine because mm-hmm. it's used this yeast to modify the flavor. And what's problematic about uh, a genetically modified? We yeast? don't know. Got it. There's no studies on it. Here's what we do know is that when you drink a natural wine mm-hmm. that doesn't contain any of these additives, mm-hmm. it is sugar-free, it is lower alcohol. Alcohol is a significant contributor to hangovers, right? I've noticed wa- that. What's that? I've noticed that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You've probably had a hangover <laughs> before. Uh, but so so it's it's really – that's the reason we only sell and drink low-alcohol wines. Now, you still get plenty high from them. You drink, you've drank our wines before. You get yeah. high. But I like the – I like the component of alcohol that I get high from that brings that warm sense of community, that openness, that bonding, the the air of vulnerability, our emotional accessibility. These are all amazing things from alcohol. But once we tip over into the other side of alcohol, then it's not quite as inspiring, right? Right, sure. So um, just finding that sweet spot in the personal Drinking lower alcohol wines without all these additives and without this commercial lab-grown genetically modified yeast in it. We, there's no studies. We don't know what the yeast means. Mm-hmm. Here's what we know. You feel very different, as you've experienced, mm-hmm. from drinking our wines, which are made of yeast and lower alcohol. You feel very differently. Mm-hmm. You don't have any negative remnants, no hangovers. Mm-hmm. Now, I don't know, unless you drink something else. <laughs> you know, if you go have a tequila after, after, after enjoying some of our wines, then you might have you know, a, a different experience. But if you only drink our wines, then, you know, typically you just don't have any negative remnants from it. So would, it, would an apt, uh, albeit extreme comparison, be that, you know, drinking a natural wine is, is more akin to drinking like a vodka soda and drinking a standard kind of American commercial wine would be like drinking like a Jack and Coke. And then if you have five of each and you see how you feel the next morning. Yeah, well, it's the same thing as if, you know, to know that sugar and alcohol are bad are bad housemates, mm-hmm. then all you have to do is drink three tequilas, three tequila shots or double shots or whatever you want versus having three margaritas. Right. Right. So this bedfellow that is sugar and alcohol makes for a nasty combination. Sure. Right. So how you're going to feel from drinking three margaritas is going to be very different than how you will feel from having three shots of tequila. Sure. Right. And yeah. so it's just a very different hangover. It's a very different buzz. It's a very, the, the margaritas are going to be a much, much more negative impact. Sure. Because you're combining the sugar along with the alcohol. It's just don't make for good friends. That makes, that makes perfect sense. And, uh, so I'm, I'm curious about, you know, there's lots of different debates within the wine community about basically everything. Um, what, uh, I know that there's like a, the French oak thing where, you know, if you put some wines in French oak, you know, some people view that as cheating or do, does that affect, uh, does like French oak or the type of barrel that the wine is stored in, does that affect... Uh, criteria that you guys test for? Do you have a position on that? It does. So we none of the wines that we sell or source are aged in new oak. Mm-hmm. So the issue is you can, you can have wines aged in oak as long as it's neutral oak, meaning it's not any longer imparting any wood flavor. It's not imparting any wood compounds. Mm-hmm. Because after about eight or ten vintages, 
all the oak will dissipate any of its distribution of flavor or what we consider to be negative compounds like methanol, mm-hmm. which is toxic, sure. which can come from, and also oak barrels are charred. So that's another issue. We just, none of our wines are aged in new oak and virtually all of them are aged in, um, in non-wood products like concrete, glass, stainless steel. Mm. Uh, they're not, you know, we're not pursuing these flavor profiles that new oak brings in. Mm-hmm. And also that we believe there are health risks associated with, with new wood products and aging wine. Got it. Although it's a very popular, people love the tannins, people love the structure, people love the, you know, the kind of smoky woodness that comes in these cult wines that are commonly made in Napa or Bordeaux or, you know, where new French oak is, is quite, or American oak. It doesn't matter to us whether, it doesn't matter to us where the tree was grown. Mm-hmm. If it's new oak, we don't, those, those wines are not, new oak barrel, they also, because natural wines are, our wines average $22 per bottle. So they're not, they're not expensive for a handcrafted fine wine product. Mm-hmm. New oak barrels are super expensive. They're about $1,000 each. Mm. So natural winemakers, just as a matter of who they are, couldn't even afford it in mm-hmm. the first place, mm-hmm. right? But we also believe that there are negative health aspects to aging wine in new oak. Got it. And uh, I know that you don't source any American wines, as of, as of today, um, in largely European, have you considered vertically integrating your company and uh, partnering with a vineyard in the United States and making sure they follow your specifications? Is that something that you've considered? We have. The problem is there's just so few wines that they're just virtually non-existent. So, you know, we have a number of criteria over and above just being natural wine. So natural wine is a category within the wine business, a very tiny, tiny category. Mm -hmm. We're the largest buyer of natural wines in the world. But over and beyond natural, we have other criteria, health criteria that apply to our wines. And and included in that is irrigation. Mm -hmm. So the name of our company is Dry Farm Wines. Mm -hmm. Dry farming means that there's no irrigation. Mm-hmm. So, and there's, we could go down a whole wormhole about why irrigation is bad for the vine, bad for your health, bad for the planet. Mm-hmm. But <clears throat> over 99.9% of American vineyards are irrigated. So that knocks out almost all wines grown in the United States just because of irrigation is so prevalent. How do you water it without irrigation? Rainwater. Okay. Right. So, Grapevines have been living for over 10,000 years all over the planet without irrigation. Irrigation didn't come to grape farming in the United States until the early 1970s. Now it's almost exclusively prevalent on every vine um, in the United States. And the reason that you irrigate a grapevine is about money. So when you irrigate a grapevine, it's easier to farm. It requires a lot less work. Mm -hmm. It has a higher yield, meaning more berries per cluster. Mm Mm-hmm. And because the fruit is filled with water, mm-hmm. it weighs more. And fruit's sold by the ton. So the more it weighs, the more it's worth. Mm-hmm. Right? And so higher yield, bigger berries, filled with water, weighs more, it's worth more. Got it. So it's also easier to farm. It's much easier to farm with irrigation. Because you don't have to worry about, you know, kind of cover crops and mulching. And, and so there's, pro- there's methods for locking in the moisture into the upper top topsoil. Mm-hmm. It's sort of like, think about just locking it down mm-hmm. so the moisture doesn't evaporate. Sure. So they're also natural wine farmers usually, almost 
exclusively never plow. So, but this is a very common practice in most vineyards and certainly in the U.S. to open the soil. But the reason a natural wine farmer doesn't open the soil is because they're obsessively concerned with living soils and biodiversity. And the problem with opening the soil is that there are these millions of organisms that are living below the mulch level in the soil. When you open that up and expose it to the sun, you kill those organisms. Mm-hmm. Right. And so, and that's important for uh, allowing their life cycles to be completed because they, uh, excrete nutrients into the soil that right. are and then they the also plant. sort of naturally aerate naturally the insects in the soil mm-hmm. complete the circle of life mm-hmm. and so natural farmers are very concerned with the quality of the life of soil right yeah. and so but any anyway so the so irrigation also an irrigated grapevine has a root ball that's about two and a half feet wide three feet wide and about two feet deep mm-hmm. because it gets all of its nutrient and water from this little tube that drips just above the trunk. So it doesn't have to go deep into the it doesn't, soil. It doesn't. It makes for a very lazy vine, which makes for lazy fruit. Mm. Right. And what so, is a lazy fruit? A lazy fruit's just a poor quality, just a poor quality fruit berry. The more any kind of organism struggles, resistance creates power. And that creates maybe a complexity of taste? It does. It does. So it creates, which is why it's illegal to irrigate in most all of Europe. It's against the law. It's actually a crime to irrigate a grapevine because it fundamentally changes the character of the fruit, the quality of the fruit from this lazy vine. So an unirrigated grapevine at maturity can have a root structure that can be 50 feet deep. Wow. As the the vine struggles to find moisture and nutrient. Mm Mm-hmm. And so the result of that is higher polyphenols, which are the positive flavonoids and antioxidants that are found in wine. There are about 200 polyphenols in white wines, and there are just over 800 in red wines. Those polyphenols, the most famous one is called resveratrol. Mm -hmm. These polyphenols are what in part we believe antioxidant health benefit cardiovascularly and neurologically. Mm -hmm. So these Poly for the reason red wines have significantly four or five times more polyphenols than white wine is from the skin contact mm-hmm. and also contact with the seeds. Mm-hmm. So how red wine gets its color, if you squeeze the juice from a white wine grape, you choose squeeze the juice from a red wine grape, they're both clear. Mm-hmm. So red wine gets its color from skin contact. So once the juice is pressed in white wine, it's just free run and it goes straight to fermentation. When you make red wine, you have this clear grape juice. You then dump the skins and seeds back into the tank mm-hmm. with the juice, mm-hmm. and then it macerates or um, has skin contact typically for anywhere from a few days to a few weeks, mm-hmm. depending upon the winemaking style. And it is that contact with the skin that gives it color, mm-hmm. and it's also where the increase in polyphenols come from. That makes sense. And that that also makes sense why I prefer red wine because it's it's healthier. I'm a red wine drinker. Yeah. It's healthier for it's, you. It's, that's why. It's the better drug. <laughs> well, so let's switch gears for a second from the science. Um, and let's say um, I'm you. I wake up in the morning. What does my day-to-day look like in my business? Um, well, we don't, we don't meet until 10 a.m. at my company. Okay. Um, we believe that protecting the morning is very important for everyone to have their own morning rituals, which for most of us include meditation and and um, and some kind of 
fitness, whether it be CrossFit or yoga or, you know, regular gym membership. But So it's not that you're waking up at 9.55? No, no, no. But I, I was saying, I'm sure most people get up. I think most of our people get up, you know, fairly early between 6 and 7. I get up between, you know, 4.30 and 6.30. Jesus. Uh, and and then whenever I wake up, mm-hmm. and, then, um, and then I have an individual routine that includes, you know, meditation, um, a cold shower before I go to the gym. Mm-hmm. But we meet at 10 as a company, and we actually meditate for an hour. So between 10 and 11 o'clock every morning, the 25 people or whoever's in town, we meet in a meditation area at their office, and we meditate from between 10 and 11. Wow. And then we actually open to the public. We open to start creating um, at 11 or 11.15. 11. Mm-hmm. And then we close between 5 and 6 in the afternoon. So when you say open and close, you actually have a retail front? In no, no, no. We have an office. Oh, sure, sure. Okay. <clears throat> we don't have any remote workers. So everybody that works with us works in this office. Got it. And and so from what I understand, your typical offerings are you curate these wines and you offer in 6 and 12 bottle combinations and they rotate relatively seasonally. So well, they rotate with every shipment. Every shipment is different. And the shipments are monthly typically? It can be monthly, bi-monthly, quarterly, whatever frequency most of our customers are on monthly or bi-monthly subscriptions. Got it. And uh, so you must be constantly having to source new wines. We have three people in Italy as we speak right now at a wine fair. So yeah, so we're so we're we attend probably about forty natural wine fairs around the world uh, annually. Most of those are between um, uh, December and April mm-hmm. because there's no activity for the farm during that period. Because mm-hmm. the vines are dormant mm-hmm. in most places of the world. Mm-hmm. I mean, South Africa, uh, December is spring. Sure. But but for most of Europe, their growing season looks very much like ours does. So it's, you know, it's harvest is in September, bud break, or when the vine comes out of dormancy from the winter is generally in mid-April. So most of these wine fairs are between December and, and April, and we pretty much have a... Um, we have a team, you know, on the ground in Europe most of the year, but most all of that period attending attending wine fairs. And so what does that selection process look like? So you've got some boots on the ground. They go to these wine fairs. They taste some things. They say, these particular vintages are excellent. They send samples to you. And, you know, I mean, who makes the final call in terms of, like, what we goes a, into the we box? We have a tasting committee. Okay. And so what will happen is um, – it depends. It can happen a number of different ways. So, so we only work with these very specific natural farms, right. right? They're very small family farms. They have to meet farming protocol and winemaking protocol before we'd even talk to them. But mm-hmm. we know who they are. There's about 1,200 about twelve hundred in the world. There's a couple hundred thousand wine farms around the world. They're, mm-hmm. they're only a, about 1,000 or 1,200 that grow to our very specific specifications. Mm-hmm. So... We'll then, maybe they send us a sample to the U.S., maybe we sample it at a fair, we pull a sample there, we bring it back to the U.S. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, first of all, we taste the wine if we like the taste of it, and we reject 60% of wines from taste alone, mm-hmm. right? So, when you don't use these additives and chemicals, you have a lot of bacterial defaults in natural wine. Mm-hmm. We don't buy faulted wine. Sure. It's just not a wine style we like. A lot of people like these faults. You know, a lot of people like... 
uh, this kind of funkiness that can come in natural wines. It's not our style of wine. We don't buy this wine. So we reject about 60% of wines on taste, and another 50% will fail labs. Mm-hmm. So we, if we like it, then we take a sample of it, mm-hmm. uh, and then it goes to the lab. And then typically it'll be retasted again by, by, the, um, by the wine panel. Mm-hmm. And then tasting notes, and you know it'll become a, a more elaborate tasting at that point in terms of detailing it out. So just so I understand the flow here, it's boots on the ground approve, then it goes for testing, or then it goes to tasting committee and then testing. It goes to the tasting committee first, and then taste testing. And then no reason for us to pay for the test if we don't like the wine. Perfect. Okay. Yeah. And then because testing is quite expensive. Yeah, that that makes that makes sense. And so then. If it's approved, it goes back to the tasting committee, and then ultimately, is yeah. Approved. Sometimes it depends on how it depends on how extensive the original taste was. Mm-hmm. So, if we had a full bottle sample in the U.S. when mm-hmm. the original taste happened, mm-hmm. then they may get they may be able to do a technical tasting at that time on the wine. Mm-hmm. Technical meaning recording of all the tasting notes and all the criteria. Mm-hmm. If it was just if it was a quicker tasting like at a fair or a mm-hmm. smaller sample, then we may retaste it again, mm-hmm. you know, to get more technical data on it. And how many people are in the tasting committee? There are five or six, depending upon, you know, who's in town. And are you part of that tasting committee? Sometimes. So it's kind of a rotating, you guys kind of tap yeah, some, in and out. Well, there's a core group. There's mm-hmm. a core group of four. Uh-huh. And then others rotate in and out. I mean, I'm commonly involved. And in the beginning, I was the tasting panel. Right. But, but it's a high volume. Tasting. It's a high vo- <laughs> yeah. It's a high volume deal, and and so and at the fairs they held during the daytime. I don't drink during the daytime. Sure. And so and these are like these are like people in their mid to late twenties who are wine professionals who you know are just super geeked out over it and sure. young and have a lot more energy for it than I sure. do. Sure. You know, so I don't I don't sit in on every tasting. Have there ever been any uh, contentious tastings? Have uh, how many fistfights break out among the testing community? No, it's 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 you'd be surprised. We we have you know we have an aesthetic, and so it's pretty well known and pretty well established. Anybody on the take, just like for hiring, same thing for wine. Anybody on the committee gets a veto, so you could any one person can hold a veto card. Got it. But that almost never happens. It's like there's almost always universal agreement as to whether a wine fits in the program or not. Got it. And we don't buy wines we think other people will like. We buy wines we love. It's the only way to stay true to your palate and to the palate of your customers. So not everybody likes our palate. Yeah. Right? So we don't sell big, dark, rich, bold wines. And if that's your style of wine, we don't drink that. We don't sell that. Yeah. So it's... So we have to buy true to what we love and then find customers who happen to love what we love. Fortunately, that, there's lots of them. That, that makes perfect sense. I mean, I, I often say that, you know, in my opinion, I think one of the best ways to um, be entrepreneurial is to solve a problem that you have yourself. And that way, if you're your own best customer, it makes the selection process for where the product goes much, much quicker, much easier. Um, so when you think about um you know you guys are, are doing quite well and i you know feel free to share metrics if, if you want or not but um, i guess my question is you know you you talk about how these are small family farms by and large and uh maybe you have already or maybe this happens depending on the scale of the farm you know what if you want to order more inventory than they can supply i mean does everybody who is subscribed to your club receiving the same 
confirmation every month or, or, or bi-monthly? Or do you have to sub, sub things out so two different people subscribed in Los Angeles might get different packages because some of the family farms that you source? Yeah, it's can- very possible that, that so the, the productions are so small that, you know, we go through so many different SKUs mm-hmm. because we might be able to only get like, you know, I mean, we we might only be able to get a few thousand bottles mm-hmm. of one thing or, you know, thousand bottles of something or 5,000 bottles of another. And like given our shipping volume, which is over 2 million bottles per year, mm-hmm. right? I mean, these these productions don't go very far. Sure. You know, so we're constantly kind of rotating in and out, which is also great for our customers because they're getting, you know, not getting the same wines all the time. They're getting very different wines. Do you ever repeat wines due to popular demand or? It's not, not usually because we normally can't buy in that kind of volume. Mm -hmm. Uh, If it's a wine that we know is going to be popular um, based on our experience or profile, we'll sometimes hold back some wine for special orders. So people will, they'll commonly contact us, particularly with certain wines mm-hmm. that are very popular and they'll, you know, request a special order. So sometimes we hold back some inventory to meet those, those demands. And what are the economics involved uh, in uh, having these farms involved in your business? Because I know from, you know, uh, talking to entrepreneurs in the subscription box um, businesses that sometimes uh, you'll get a huge discount or even free product because of the exposure that you'll get for your product if you participate, you know, in this subscription service. Do they cut you any breaks or do you no, always have to pay? No, just the opposite, actually. Really? Just the opposite. We pay more to the farmer than our competitive import. So we import, we, we compete to buy wines with other natural wine importers. Really? And so we actually pay the farmer better pricing and much better terms. Um, and so than what other importers are able to pay because they're so small. Mm-hmm. So they need, they need kind of financing terms. So they need 90 days to pay where we pay, 50% when we pick it up, and we pay the other 50% when it gets to the U.S. Most importers require at least 90-day terms to pay. So to a small family farm, get, being able to get paid faster, mm-hmm. you know, is a very big deal. We also pay more because mm-hmm. we've eliminated this person between us and them. We share part of that with the farmer. So mm-hmm. we're not trying to actually spend less. We're trying to spend a little bit more mm-hmm. in order to be able to buy the best wines in the world. Got get it. access to the best wines. And it seems t- typically these farmers are committed very much to the natural winemaking process. Have you ever encountered uh, a farm that's making a product that initially you love and then they scale and they no longer stand up to the criteria? Just one. Yeah? Just one, but we've, uh, I, you know, we terminate a relationship with them. Gotcha. So, I mean, if we catch anybody, look, we're health fanatics. This is not marketing spin. This is a life we live. Mm-hmm. These are wines I drink every day. Sure. Right. And so it's, um, I mean, we're passionately obsessive about this quality and, and about these practices. So, sure. I mean, we have only caught one, but if we catch people, you know, if we catch people bending the rules or not being honest with us about their, their practices, then, you know, we just terminate the relationship. Gotcha. That makes sense. Um, well, I, I want to, uh, I want to, end with just a few questions about mushrooms because I can't help myself oh. because you, you, you know, I'm an expert. Okay. Well, can, can you tell us a little bit about, um, how you see the landscape changing with, um, 
uh, obviously, you know, mushrooms are, are become, I think they were on the ballot in Colorado potentially for medicinal use. And how do you see the landscape changing over the coming years potentially with regard you know, you, to mushrooms? You, you, you would hope that, that science and anecdotal evidence and, you know, would, would come to light. There's a, you know, there's a whole bunch of studies being underwritten now, both for MDMA as well as, as well as mushrooms and, you know, studies treating um, PTSD and and uh, and depression and bipolar and there's there's a whole bunch of very positive early evidence showing that psychedelics are very effective in treating these uh, mental conditions. Mm-hmm. And so, hopefully, you know. You, but the problem is, you know, when you go to Washington and you look at the people who are who are making the laws, you know, you're looking at people who are 60 and 70 and 80 years old, right? Mm-hmm. You see these old white guys, mm-hmm. you know, who are in the Senate almost exclusively and certainly and certainly the House as well. There's just, but particularly in the Senate, you just see like these old white guys who just don't get it at all, right? Don't understand it and have no experience with it. For anyone who has any experience with psychedelics, then, and I have a fair amount of experience with them. <laughs> Anybody who has experience with them, you know, and, and there's a number of ways to approach psychedelics. Are you, you know, is it, a, is it a therapeutic, you know, if you do a therapeutic dose of mushrooms, I mean, I wouldn't call it an altogether pleasant experience. <laughs> I call it a kind of a reset. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, it's buckle up and hold on. You not know I mean? not something a, that you, you it's not something of, you want to quickly do again. Right, right. I do it like maybe twice a year. And then recreationally or, you know, for micro dosing, then that's a different deal. But but in terms of a therapeutic dose of mushrooms, I don't think it's a I don't I don't find it to be pleasant at all, at least for part of the ride. Mm-hmm. You know, as it starts to subside off the peak, mm-hmm. you know, you might find some pleasant territory again. But when you're peaking out on a therapeutic dose, let's say of something between you know, four and six grams, then buckle up. You know, I mean, it, 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 I mean, it's not altogether pleasant. But the reset effect for me, then uh, this is a once or twice a year on a therapeutic dose. Then this reset effect is very monumental for mental health. Have you come uh, out of these experiences with any um, sort of succinct or salient points, or is it more an overall feeling of well being? Just an over fo- overall feeling of well being that lasts for, you know, several weeks to months. Mm-hmm. That just, just what I would call a reset. Sure. Right. And so, but, but again, I don't, there's nothing I recommend for the faint of heart. I mean, it, <laughs> you know, I mean, it's an unpleasant ride from my perspective and not something you want to jump right back on again. I mean, it's one of the, you know, this, the fact that psychedelics are Schedule One narcotics is just kind of ridiculous. Mm. We know they're not addictive for sure. Sure. Uh, and um, so even if you're doing, even if you're microdosing or, or doing, you know, smaller dosing for recreation, or they're still even then not addictive. I mean, you just don't want to do them that often. So what about it makes it your drug of choice, quote unquote? I just, it, I, it's just a... There's an openness about how we, there's a lightness. There's a, you know, there's an aspect of, uh, and I'm talking about a recreational dose now in Mm -hmm. terms of drug of choice from an enjoyment point of view, Mm -hmm. which is going to be maybe a gram and a half to 
two grams or maybe at the top side, two and a half grams, mm-hmm. right? So now we're in sort of a maybe a sem- semi-visual state, maybe mm-hmm. some slight visuals, uh, maybe some slight strobing, but just a, a tremendous euphoria, mm-hmm. right? And that euphoria, and particularly when you're connected on that wavelength of euphoria with someone you love or other friends, mm-hmm. and so you get in that psychedelic loop together, mm-hmm. you know, where everything else other than this present moment and this present mind of euphoria is just completely blocked from existence. Mm-hmm. You know, that loop is quite exceptional, particularly if you're with people that you know or, and or love, you know, and, and I don't mean love in a romantic sense. Mm-hmm. I mean, l- with your friends yeah. or a friend, particularly as one-on-one with just a good friend, mm-hmm. you know, and you're, you're in that loop, that euphoric space, that, that loop where no one else is in your loop with you. Sure. You know, and so it can be quite profound. Sure. Uh, but that's different than the hero dose. I'm not talking <laughs> about the reset. Sure. So I assume you've had a reset before. <laughs> no comment. But. Right. So. <laughs> um, yeah. Well, I mean, I, I also, uh, I greatly admire your consistency because it sounds like, um, you know, with, with, uh, with the mushrooms as well as with the proper dosing of wine, it seems like consistently you keep coming back to these substances have value when used properly because they bring people together and they forge stronger relationships and uh, overall just encourage loving thy neighbor, so to speak. In, in the right dose. Right. <laughs> in the right set and setting. So like, you know, wine, like all drugs, you know, is influenced by set and setting, mm-hmm. right? So who you're with, where you're with, how long a wine bottle's been open, you know, just, just, a whole, just a whole set and setting criteria. Same thing for psychedelics. I mean, the impact of the type of experience that you're going to have is going to be very dose dependent and it's also going to be set and setting dependent yeah well thank you for being in this setting with me today awesome man happy to be here really appreciate it thank you todd white everybody thank you